Advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down, try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, Of course, I want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable for the second hour. Today, our sponsors are Merrick's Gold and Legend Gold. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me today Lawrence Hummel. Lawrence Rogers Hummel is a research fellow at the Independent Institute and Associate Professor of Economics at San Jose State University. He received his Ph.D. in history from the University of Texas at Austin and has been Associate Adjunct Professor of Economics and History at Golden Gate University, Uh, Publications Director at the Independent Institute, William C. Bark National Fellow at the Hoover Institute, and a U.S. Army Tank Platoon Leader. Uh, Professor Hummel is the author of the book Emancipating Slaves, Enslaving Freemen, A History of the American Civil War. He wrote the scripts for the audio tape programs, The U.S. Constitution, narrated by Walter Cronkite, and American Wars, narrated by George C. Scott. His articles have appeared in many publications, including the Journal of Economic History, Review of Austrian Economics, Journal of Libertarian Studies, and Reason. And he has also contributed to the Encyclopedia of American Business History and Biography. Welcome, Professor Hummel, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you. Um, let me just make one correction. Okay, please. <laughs> My first name is Jeff. Uh, oh, I'm Jeffrey. sorry. Well, uh, okay. You got me mixed up with your previous guest. Maybe I did that, and it wouldn't <laughs> be unlike me, believe me. Well, thanks for the correction, Jeff. Jeff Hummel, Professor yes. Hummel. Yep. Uh, thank you. Um, I noticed that you have uh, published in the Review of Austrian Economics publication. Do you consider yourself an Austrian economist? Um, sort of. I, I, um, I studied um, economics uh, as an undergraduate under Hans Senholtz, who was mm-hmm. a student of Mises. So sure. I've been heavily influenced um, by Austrian theory, and I'm quite familiar with it. But I, I sort of think of myself as a, a kind of Austrian neoclassical amalgam, um, okay. <clears throat> uh, taking what I think is the best from from both traditions, which puts me in the peculiar situation of when I'm with a group of Austrian economists, I feel like a neoclassical economist, and when I'm among neoclassical economists, I feel like an Austrian. So you're always going to be in trouble. Yes. (laughs) Well, but uh, you're you're really going to be in trouble then with the Keynesians, aren't you? Right, right. Well, um, I think uh, it's still a small group of people who are not Keynesians these days. Would you agree? Um, yes and no. Um, I mean, it's not, it's, you you still have the new classical economists, uh, most notably today, John Cochran at the University of Chicago, who wouldn't, certainly wouldn't qualify as Keynesians, although they're, um, not Austrians either. Yeah. Um, so, okay, let's get to the discussion of the U.S. debt and why you think, I think, this, I think I read your article correctly. Why you think there's a good chance that our government uh, will or may default on its uh, on its treasury obligations? In the news, of course, uh, it's very much in the news now. This battle between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats, predictably, wanting to raise taxes, and the Republicans wanting to cut spending. It seems to me as if this is uh, an insolvable impasse. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I agree entirely with you. It's uh, you have these huge fiscal imbalances. 
that arise mainly from the entitlements, uh, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Um, and the numbers involved, if you translate them into present value terms, are just enormous. And they represent the amount by which either um, future spending has to be cut or future taxes has to, have to be raised. Uh, and, um, and the politicians have no incentive to fix the problem. And yeah. I think that eventually uh, this will generate a fiscal crisis in which the Treasury defaults on Treasury securities. Well, you certainly make the case for that, and it was very interesting, and that's why I asked my producer to try to, to see if she could get you on the show. Um, you, so in your, your recent essay, why default on U.S. Treasuries is likely, I think many people have believed that a de facto default on U.S. Treasuries will take place by a process of inflation. Uh, but you aren't talking about that. You're talking about an outright uh, policy of refusing to pay nominal value of, of interest and principal or combination right. of the two on, on, treasury. on treasury securities. Right. Um, and the reason for that is, is that I don't think um, inflation any longer can generate sufficient revenue um, or a sufficient uh, reduction in the real value of the outstanding debt to cover the shortfall. Um, unless it's truly catastrophic inflation. I mean, inflation uh, of the uh, Zimbabwe sort. And um, when governments default, you know, they, they, they still have the option of, uh, of discriminating between various groups of creditors. Right. And so I think, I think when the, well, partially the politicians are going to be faced with a situation where they're not going to have very many options. But one option they're going to have is... Um, trying to inflate their way out of the problem, which will cause um, both a de facto default on Treasury securities and um, a collapse of the dollar, or they can save the dollar and let Treasury securities go. And faced with those stark alternatives, I think they're going to go for the latter. Well, I know you do, and I want to explore that and the reasons for that in a minute. But let's let's go to this issue of uh, why can't we just get along? Why can't we just fix things? Uh, why can't we increase taxes? Why can't we uh, cut spending or some combination of the two? Well, uh, cutting, I, cutting spending involves enormous cuts in um, both, uh, well, particularly in Medicare and Medicaid, but also Social Security. And I just don't think the politicians have the incentive to ever bring about those kinds of cuts. I mean, even the Republicans, although, mm -hmm. they've, although they've started to talk about um, cutting entitlements, um, have been hesitant about pushing that. And the Democrats um, are um, not going to give in on that. Uh, they won't allow any really serious spending reductions on these programs. So I don't think the spending is going to be cut. And the problem with trying to raise taxes is not just the political opposition, but the level to which you have to raise taxes to cover um, these uh, shortfalls mm -hmm. that are coming in the future um, are just uh, completely unprecedented uh, with respect to American uh, history and its history of taxation. One of the most striking statistics, I think, is if you look at taxes, total federal revenue as a percent of GDP, since um, the Korean War, it's been bumping up about 20, per, bumping up against about 20 percent of GDP mm -hmm. throughout that entire post-war period. And when you think about all of the changes in the tax code mm -hmm. that have occurred over those decades, that's really an astonishing number. In mm -hmm. other words, tax rates go up, tax rates go down. Uh, they fiddle with the tax code, and the total bite out of the economy. Um, remains fairly constant, mm -hmm. which suggests that that's a, a, a structural limit uh, resulting from both political and economic factors, and mm -hmm. I don't think it's likely to be breached. Mm -hmm. And even if it is breached, um, the highest taxes have ever been in U.S. history as a percent of GDP, federal taxes, mm -hmm. is, 20, is a little bit less than 25% of GDP during the crisis of World War II. Mm. Um, Yet these entitlement programs um, require taxes to go up to um, 30, 35 percent, 40 percent of GDP. And, and, and some estimates, if you throw in state and local 
um, expenditures as, as well suggests that, that if you rely on taxes entirely to cover the uh, shortfall, um, that eventually total, the total tax bite is going to have to rise to about 75% of gross domestic product. And that's just not going to happen. No, I, I would think the, the economy, what would be left of the economy without <laughs> right. that much taxes? Uh, right. You know, I mean, that's, that's even, you know, that's even, um, none of, none of the, um, social welfare states of the, uh, of Europe, uh, approach that number. The Swedes and those folks never went right. that high. Well, that's uh, that's that's really something. So probably twenty percent, no matter how hard Mr. Obama pushes for increased taxes, right. it's, it's going to be right. very difficult to get over that number. Yes. Uh, and then on the spending cuts, I would argue that there have been some de facto spending cuts, and I'd like to ask you this because we've had economist John Williams on this show before, who believes that the inflation numbers that were given are, are really bogus in terms of what it truly costs to stay alive. Would you agree with that? Actually, no. I, I think the inflation numbers are about as close to accurate as you can get. Um, okay. And, and let me just give you, I mean, I could give you, go into the statistical aspects of it, but let me just give you my anecdotal um, defense of that, that position. I'm old enough to have lived through the great inflation of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm old enough to remember when inflation hit double digits. Um, I lived through a decade in which if you put your money in a bank, mm-hmm. um, you were an idiot mm-hmm. because it was literally throwing it away mm-hmm. um, because of the inflation. And nothing that's happened recently um, in the U.S. even comes close to that. So I think that I think that concerns about inflation, I mean, they're... There, there is some inflation. Um, there has been, you know, a low level of inflation uh, since since the uh, mid 1980s. But I don't think it's as serious as a lot of people uh, seem to believe. I think what people may be confusing is changes in relative prices mm-hmm. um, versus a general rise in the price level. Mm-hmm. And we're facing a global economy where. Um, China and India are coming online, and uh, you know that's a lot of people. Yeah. And it would be surprising if that didn't bring about significant changes in relative prices. And and so I think um, prices of uh, commodities are going up, prices of food are going up. But then you have to offset that with declining prices of computers. Or I mean, just think about how much cheaper it is to get a shirt these days at Walmart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there is, there's mild inflation, um, but I don't think it's, I think the numbers are approximately right, as right as those numbers can ever be. I mean, all macroeconomic aggregates, all these measures are inherently imprecise. Well, it would really be interesting to have you and John Williams on together, because I know he takes a, a really different view of it, and, uh, you know, as a bystander, I'd like to know uh, what the real truth is, but I do. So, uh, Williams would argue for example, that hedonic pricing or substitution, uh, substituting hamburger for steak, for example, when the price of steak gets high, that, those kinds of measures that are that are taking place, uh, they're not they're not particularly troublesome to you, I guess. Yeah, I I, I just think I I don't think he's. The, I mean, we could get into a long technical debate that would sure. bore your listeners. Yeah, <laughs> I just right. don't think that that those those well some of those things that he objects to i think actually are moving in the right direction i mean mm-hmm. to, to the extent that the consumer price index um, is what's known as a lapair index and uses base period weights um, the tendency is for it to overstate the rate of inflation, not understate the rate of inflation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we have other measures. We just don't have to rely on the CPI. We can look at the GDP deflator and the purchasing price uh, index. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they, they differ um, because these numbers are imprecise, but they roughly tell the same story. Um, excuse me, my wife was trying to call me on... Uh, on Skype, and she has no idea how bad that is for me. And I wish, <laughs> sweetheart, if you're listening to this show over in Portugal, please do not call me on Skype. Uh, you have no idea. Uh, you're going to you're going to break up our marriage if you do that again. Don't do that. All right. Let's get that squared away. All right. So, um, uh, if I can gather my thoughts now after that, 
Okay, so the the inflation thing is not troublesome. I, I think one thing, uh, what about the wages, though, American wages, uh, in real terms? Would you agree that they have not increased? They haven't been increasing as much as they did in the past. But again, you also have to adjust um, for um, for benefits. This is a, a field that I'm not a, not a, an expert in. Um, but in other words, the current recession has been a recession. And when you have a recession, um, people take a hit, and uh, that means increasing unemployment. And this is uh and and uh, and losses suffered by people but but you know again over the last couple of decades um the tendency has been for real incomes to go up and real wages are not going up as fast as incomes but but um I think it's a complex problem, but not a serious problem. Okay, good. Well, let's get on to the topic that I really wanted to focus on then, and that is why, uh, you know, you've, you've talked about why we can't raise taxes beyond about 20%, why it's impossible to get the kind of spending cuts, the magnitude of spending cuts that are required in order to get to the point where, um, you know, where, where we could solve this problem that we've got, this, this indebtedness uh, problem that we have. Uh, you talked about, uh, I guess, the terminology is scenerage. Yes, yeah, the ability. Is the term. Uh, the, you know, because the other thing then that most of my gold bug friends say is that we're going to just print our way out of debt. We're going to raise, you know, going to print so much money that the dollars will become worthless. Therefore, uh, you know, they'll be paid. The Treasury will be paid in nominal terms, but in real terms, they'll be worthless. Right. You say that's not possible. You say that is more well, not possible. Likely. A, I mean, not likely. I mean, it's possible if we if we go for the Zimbabwe option. Okay, and, and explain the Zimbabwe. What's the difference between Zimbabwe well, and Well, Zimbabwe was a hyperinflation, and it was a hyperinflation in which prices were doubling um, at its peak every day. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, let, let me just give you throw out some numbers. Um, seniorage is the term that economists use for the revenue that government gets from printing up money. Net of the cost of doing so, right? Pardon? Net of the cost of printing. Yeah, net of the cost of doing so. Yeah. So it's Mm -hmm. it's, it's essentially, you know, when the Federal Reserve creates money, it essentially Mm -hmm. loans it to the Treasury, which spends it, and um, that covers government expenditure. So if we look at the history of seniorage in the U.S., what we discover is that... um, it generated um, significant revenue for Americans during the American Revolution. You had a hyperinflation for the Confederacy during the Civil War, when you, where you had a hyperinflation uh, for the uh, Union during the Civil War. Seniorage gener- covered about 15% of government expenditures. Mm-hmm. During World War II, the Fed doubled the monetary base, and that covered about 6% of government expenditures, which was about 3% of GDP. During the great inflation of the 1970s that I just talked about, Mm -hmm. where inflation hit double digits, it only covered 2% of government expenditures, which was about a half a percent of GDP. Mm -hmm. And what that shows is that that, um, even double-digit inflation doesn't contribute that much revenue to the government. Uh, and I think that's for um, uh, two reasons. One, because of because of the um, sophistication of the financial system, where where most people are not holding government created money; they're holding bank created money. Mm-hmm. And while bank created money um, can contribute to inflation, it doesn't generate seniorage for the government. Mm-hmm. And that means that the uh, level of inflation required for a certain amount of government revenue is very, very high. So my estimate, my conservative estimate, is that um, in order to cover um, the shortfall, uh, the uh, U.S. government would have to start, or the Federal Reserve would have to start um, generating inflation uh, of about 246% per year. In other words, tripling the uh, price level year after year after year. Hmm. Um, and I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, I don't think that the, that, uh, you know, given the, given the, um, and that, and that's a, that's a conservative estimate. It may require even um, more significant inflation than that to, uh, to cover the shortfall. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
I think when when the when the fiscal crisis materializes, things will move very fast, and to a certain extent, um, a default will be forced on the Treasury even before the Federal Reserve can act. And as I mentioned before, I think faced with the prospect of saving the dollar mm-hmm. um, and and defaulting on treasuries or um, generating such a severe inflation that you end up essentially defaulting on both, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that the uh, officials will go for saving the dollar. Mm-hmm. Well, if, they're, if you think they would have that choice then? Um, I think they have that choice in part because because the Federal Reserve creates a kind of firewall between what the Treasury does and um, what what uh, uh, what happens with respect to monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in other words, there's there's uh, they're, they're autonomous, uh, partially autonomous. I, I realize political influences uh, uh, cross that uh, firewall, but but. Um, but if the Treasury were responsible for printing up money, then um, inflation would be much more uh, a much more likely outcome. If the uh, Treasury, yeah, okay, if if the government were printing the money rather than the uh, the private banking institution, right, right, the, the Federal Reserve, right. And I understand that in fact uh, Congressman Kucinich would like to do that. He would like to do away with the Fed and have the Congress um, print money. I think he has uh, entered a end yes. the Fed bill. Uh, yeah. Ron Paul so, is a, has also entered. Know, I'm not happy with having Ben Bernanke in charge of the money supply, uh-huh. um, but if it's a choice between Ben Bernanke or President Obama mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or Congress, uh, especially a Democratic-controlled Congress, um, I think we have uh, the best of two bad possible worlds. Yeah, well, I can see there really is a difference, though, between if you look at, so we had hyperinflation during the Civil War, during the Revolutionary War, and why? Because we didn't have a well-defined, uh, a well-developed credit market, a private uh, banking right. system, uh, and, and as Zimbabwe does not have, and so right. therefore the government can literally print money, shower it out over the populace. Right, and, and, and there's the additional fact that, that central banks to a certain extent, we have um, internationally with the global economy an approximation of what Friedrich Hayek advocated. Um, Friedrich Hayek advocated the privatization of money, and then he predicted that um, as a result of that, you would have private banks, truly private banks, not mm-hmm. government banks, uh, central banks, but truly private banks issuing private fiat money, which would um, compete with each other, and the competition would keep down um, rates of inflation. Mm-hmm. Well, to a certain extent, the global economy gives us an approximation of that system because we have a world of competing central banks where people can quickly move from one currency to another, um, which means we now have a situation um, where um, if central banks try to misprice their currency or um, try to... <laughs> Um, pull off uh, a surprise inflation. Those those changes in policy are almost immediately priced mm-hmm. in the foreign exchange market. And if we look at the history, you know, when speculators go up against central banks, as Soros taught us, who always wins and who always loses? Yeah. The speculators always win, and the central banks always lose. And yeah. that, and that that creates a kind of um, imperfect, um, but nonetheless um, partially effective uh, discipline on the activities uh, of central banks. Mm. And another reason that I think that inflation is not going to be likely is the way the crisis is going to play out. In other words, I think default is inevitable, um, and what will initiate the default is when investors start putting a risk premium on Treasury securities. Yeah, and that hasn't happened. When that do you think that will yet. happen? The, the bond vigilantes have been gone. We've, as James, uh, we're going to listen uh, uh, in the next uh, segment um, uh, to James Grant, who's talked about the 33-year bull market in Treasuries. 
uh, I think at some point in your paper you talked about uh, you think that bond traders are smarter than they were in the were in the seventies. Yes. Did you say? But it, I'm wondering how you can say that when people are pricing. U.S. Treasuries, um, you know where they are now, given given the view that you have of the U.S. Treasury. Right. Well, I think that's a that's a consequence of the recent recession and the flight to liquidity. Mm-hmm. And I think, and and therefore, I think it's a temporary um, situation. Um, I can think of, you know, I, this is pure speculation, but I can think of various scenarios which would cause um, uh, uh, investors to start. Uh, putting a risk premium on treasury securities. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Give, give me a couple of examples. Okay, well, we one example is, uh, let's say that the Republicans don't blink, <laughs> uh-huh. um, and, uh, and the debt limit is not raised. Uh, that um, could spark, um, all of a sudden, investors, you know, Moody starts downgrading um, treasury securities, uh, once, once, once a risk premium appears on those securities, things will move very fast because mm-hmm. the cost of rolling over the short-term debt goes up, and it would it, it'll it'll move like the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. It'll be out of the out of the control of Treasury. Now, now if this current crisis is uh, um, or or, or um, dispute is resolved that just pushes the problem down the road another possibility another trigger could be when the trust funds for um, social security and um, medicare are out of money and all of a sudden uh, the government has to start funding those out of general revenue uh, and uh, holders of treasury securities will all of a sudden recognize that uh, the um, the, the financial, financially insecure position of these entitlements is actually going to affect the value of their securities, and that could trigger um, a risk premium. I mean, yeah. there's, there, there are all sorts of triggers. So do you see this possibility, uh, do you see a possibility of a deflationary implosion, a de- deflationary depression? Um, I don't believe that, you're, that you see the likelihood of hyperinflation, but do no. you see the, the possibility? And I don't think deflation is, is, um, is likely either. I mean, well, it depends on what type of deflation. I, I, you know, we saw minor deflation mm-hmm. um, during the recent recession. I think yeah. that's possible, but the kind of deflation that occurred during the Great Depression uh, I don't think that's uh, a likely possibility uh, either. And why? Uh, because because um, that's the one thing um, that mainstream economists are most scared of yeah. and mainstream central bankers are most scared of is that kind of deflation. Right. And therefore, once it starts happening, that that. The, the prospect of that kind of deflation would open the monetary floodgates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that they, they, they would move heaven and earth, and they have the capability of preventing that kind of deflation by flooding the system with money. So that's, that's why, you know, it it's all has to do with projecting what the Federal Reserve is going to do. Uh, and and, and, and um, I just think that, that they're so concerned about that that that's no. not likely. Maybe Dennis Kucinich gets his bill passed then, and, uh, and the Congress ha- literally starts the Zimbabwe process here. <laughs> uh, let's hope and pray not, but uh, in any event, it's really fascinating uh, views you have. We always like to get views that are somewhat different uh, on our show, and I want to thank you so much for passing those along. We are out of time. Oh, I would dear. like to say, though, I, I find... Uh, I don't get to tell you why I think default will be good in the long run. Yeah, tell me. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll squeeze the next segment. Okay. Um, the, the reason I think it will be good in the long run, in the short run, it'll be, it'll be a financial crisis like the one we recently went through. But in the long run, I think it'll be beneficial uh, in part because you can think of it as kind of a balanced budget amendment with teeth. Uh, where it will make uh, people a lot less prone to loan to the U.S. government, and therefore the U.S. government will um, um, uh, will be a lot more careful about about spending in the future. And I think when you look at the history of defaults where governments haven't been bailed out, um, they generally, in the long run, result in more fiscal responsibility. Okay. Well, that's uh, you know that's a certainly... short answer. I could give a long yeah, answer. Yeah, I, but... I know you could, and I wish we had the time. We'll have to have you back, and we can talk more. But certainly, people did learn some lessons from the 1930s and behaved themselves for quite a while. Yes. And then 
and then things are lost. Uh, you know, the, the values are lost over time. But I, I really want to just say, emancipating slaves, enslaving uh, free men, a history of the American Civil War, sounds like a very interesting book. Where can people buy that? Um, it's available. It's still in print, and it's available uh, on Amazon. Any place where people can keep track of your work otherwise? Um, they, I, um, I blog at... Um, at a group blog called Liberty and Power, which okay. is run by the History News Network, and I don't remember the URLs off the top of my head. But they can Google that. Uh, they can Google that. They can also go to the uh, Google the Economics Department at San Jose State University and um, uh, look at the faculty, and I have a web page there. Okay. Very good. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, folks, don't go away because we're going to be right back after the break with some uh, interesting views from James Grant as he expressed them yesterday on Bloomberg. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital, combined with advanced technology, will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH. Merex Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $16 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merex's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. This program is brought to you by Sandgold at www.sandgold.ca. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-ten gold mining region. Sandgold continues to show tremendous exploration success. With two mines already in production, the company is now revealing a new gold mining trend. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www. .sandgold.ca Voice America Business Network The bottom line in business Welcome to the human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I am your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, I titled this show this week, Thinking the Unthinkable, and one of the unthinkable ideas was just expressed by Professor Hummel, who explained why he thinks the U.S. will default outright on its Treasury obligations. That is a very different view than most gold bugs have. They suppose that a, a de facto default will take place as the dollar uh, as dollars are printed in mass and will lose purchasing power so that the debt is paid off in worthless dollars uh, down the road. But as you just heard, Professor Hummel says it will be, uh, he believes it will be an outright default. Uh, in fact, the nominal amounts of interest and principal will not be repaid by the U.S. government. Well, time will tell whether he's right or not, but he certainly does provide some good arguments for that view. 
A second unthinkable idea is expressed by highly regarded intellect James Grant, and which he, he expressed in an interview yesterday on Bloomberg Television. Listen to this exchange between Carol Masser and Bloomberg. Um, Mr. Grant had the following to say. He said, um, we have a saying in Brooklyn that is not a... That, let me start again. To quote Mr. Grant in yesterday's uh, interview with Carol Master, he says, we have a saying in Brooklyn that is not a threat, that is not a promise, it is going to happen. He said that in relation to, uh, in response to a question that Carol Master had about going back to a gold standard, which uh, Mr. Grant uh, suggested was going to happen. So James also thinks that the European crisis is completely unsolvable given problems that are arising now. Uh, he believes that the U.S. certainly does have some problems, but uh, they can be uh, that the bigger problems are certainly uh, in Europe. Uh, as the storm clouds gather over the entire Western world, I go back to the work of Ian Gordon, uh, who suggested that there is going to be a, a, de- a, a, a real deflationary depression, certainly not uh, what uh, our previous guest just uh, expressed. Uh, but David Morgan talks, as an engineer, talks about limits and uh, how you can't continue to go into debt forever without something giving. And I just look at this uh, at, at the chart of total debt growing exponentially relative to income, and I say, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out this thing is not going to go on. Uh, in any event, I, I would like um, I would like Justin, my engineer, Justin, can you play that? segment uh, from uh, the interview yesterday with Carol Mass, uh, with uh, the Bloomberg interview with uh, James Grant. Can you play that now for us, please? He's well known to investors and the Wall Street elite. Jim Grant, founder of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, says in his latest newsletter that the debt crisis in Washington is artificial. He says if you want a real crisis, well, just check out Europe. He joins us now in studio. Good to have you here with us, Thank Jim. Thank you, Carol. Nice to be So you don't worry so much about what's going on. You worry about the U.S., but... Well, we have- Plenty of problems, but I think uh, the, the crisis is contrived. The crisis is a political uh, bottleneck, and I have no doubt but that it will be unstuck. Uh, Europe is a substantive uh, difficulty that uh, is, in fact, coming to a crisis. Wait, not so fast in the U.S., because you say it'll get unstuck, but do you think they'll make any progress? Because no. it seems... <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that something will be done. Uh, to push back the resolution of our mounting debt problems, both the visible debts and mm-hmm. the promises that we have made um, uh, to, f- to future uh, recipients of this and that entitlement. Uh, we will succeed in pushing it out into the future. I think that the, this, this uh, August 2nd deadline, it will somehow we'll scoop by that. So that, that, that is why, in my opinion, uh, this is not exactly a crisis, certainly not in the sense that uh, the European uh, debt problems are reaching crisis state. I mean, you have a look at the U.S. Treasury market. They don't seem too worried, do they? No. Um, uh, the U.S. Treasury market uh, is pretty fine. Yeah. If that were a stock, you wouldn't mind it having owned it. Yeah. Um, what does it say to you, though, that the, the Treasury market seems to be just kind of shrugging off? Well, let me, let me uh, say by way of preface that I didn't expect this. I have been bearish on Treasuries for what seems like a very long time, indeed mm-hmm. has been, um, and a bubble is a bull market in which one has not fully participated. That's a bubble. So with all that by way of preface, right. uh, the Treasury market to me is working on muscle memory. It is, has been going up in price, down in yield since 1981. 33-0 years of a bull market. And, and people have come to view, I think, again, my opinion, have come to view Treasuries as intrinsically safe when, in fact, Treasuries are pieces of paper emitted by a government that is cash flow negative, and that is the printer of the world's reserve currency, which reserve currency franchise is, in fact, not helpful. Which is why you talk a lot about going back to the gold standard. Yes. You do. And, and let me just remind everybody. Going you, forward to the gold standard. Going forward. Going forward. <laughs> exactly. But let me, you actually testified before a hearing before Congressman Ron Paul. You did this back uh, that a committee he chaired back in March. Let me just play it for everybody. Listen up. To the Ph.D. standard from the gold standard. I submit, Mr. Chairman, it is past time to reconsider. Are you getting any takings, or takers rather, in Washington about the idea of going back, going forward to a gold standard? I would say that Washington is not on the cutting edge of this idea. They're not. They're not. I mean, it's no. how you present it. Well, uh, but to me, the, the existing system, the Bernanke Fed, the, the PhDs in the Federal Open Market Committee, staff and committee people mm. who decide on our funds rate and on the magnitude of the next QE, this to me is such an anachronism. It is so 
unwiki. I mean, the world, the world um, has become a collaborative place with the advent of digital information. In fact, the collaborative nature of the digital age is very much an echo in monetary terms of the gold standard, which was a system of terrific elegance that worked uh, through, through market forces and was extremely subtle. Um, what we have moved back from, from right. we, have, we, have, we have backtracked into the present day system in which elites on top impose a rate, impose a rate of money printing on the marketplace. That's not progress. Okay, but do you really think anybody's going to adopt it, Jim? I mean, it makes sense. I get what you're saying, but I mean, do you really think... Carol, in Brooklyn, we have a saying. This is not a threat. This is not a promise. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I, well, I, if we I, don't do it, what happens? Well, I, I, think it, I, I think the reason it will happen, it is, it, the gold standard clearly um, is, 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 is a better alternative for monetary management. That, you know, his, to me, the historical evidence is incontrovertible. We, we, have, we, we today are, are submitting to the regime of people so well-intended, but people who are printing money mm -hmm. for reasons that mostly they, I think they imagine. So if we don't go back to a gold standard, we don't go forward to a gold standard, what happens? How does well, this play what, out in your view? More of today. More of today. Um, uh, the United States let us not forget, consumes much more than produces. We pay for the difference, called the deficit, trade deficit, in dollars that we print. These dollars are absorbed by the Asian central banks. Mm -hmm. They print the currency to buy our dollars. And then, and then, they use those dollars to buy our treasuries. Therefore, our debts spiral, spiral. There is no check, there is no, there's no market check on the American issuance of debt. We have a credit card, and a gold standard would be our debit card. That's what we need. I love that idea that you say that we need a debit card. Let me ask you about these um, credit rating agencies, Jim. How, how closely do you follow what S&P is doing? I mean, it's, it's oh, whatever they say, I believe. Truly? No. Well, that's the point. I mean, we, if we kind of made fun of them well, for the well, crisis. Well, S&P came in, I think it was March, and it, and it said it was about, it cleared its throat and said it was about to think about downgrading the United States of America. But one of the reasons that it gave for, for holding that in advance was the strength of the dollar and of the reserve currency franchise. No, that, is, that is the reason to worry about this great country with this great economy. We have the seeming gift of our ability to pay our bills in the currency that we alone can print. Mm -hmm. But this gift is, in fact, a great detriment. It is, no, it is no help to us that we have this magic credit card. What do you do when you get a magic credit card? While you run it. Yeah, you get into trouble yeah. really quickly. And that's it's what the end saying. of the month. Hey, I made you focus a lot on the United States, and I know you said the real crisis in Europe. So go to Europe. Uh, it doesn't seem like they can fix any of this, or can they? Well, they, they, they could. They, they could face the fact that in the case of some of these countries, there is a real solvency crisis, and acknowledge that fact and mark down the debt accordingly. They could do that. They are not going to do that. The right. president... Um, of the European Central Bank protests that if he were to allow a default in Greece that he or the European Central Bank could not accept those sovereign debts as good collateral. Mm. So the, he, he invokes a technical objection to, to, to facing what is, after all, a set of objective facts. Um, and the, 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 these facts will be faced. You can't, you can't ultimately not doubt that they're facts. I have a guest coming up, Sean Egan, after you, and he actually downgraded U.S. debt to below investment grade over the weekend, and he says um, that's a chance that the U.S. will bail out European banks and governments through Fed swap lines with the ECB. Could you see something like that playing out in a well, tax? I'm going to let Sean address that, but the, United, the Federal Reserve has, in fact, extended swap lines, uh, very large ones, uh, since 2008, and it's certainly not out of the question. But Sean's your man on that one. All right, so I'll talk to him. Hey, just I've got about a minute left here. You know, I thought it was interesting in your report, you actually brought out some names like Hewlett-Packard, ExxonMobil, Walmart. You say these are things that maybe investors should be looking at. Yeah, in, in the case of Walmart, um, a friend of mine has done the arithmetic and in a couple of decades, if stock repurchases proceed at this pace, there'll be one share left. One share of Walmart left, and he will have it, and it'll be worth $20 billion. <laughs> so much for Berkshire Hathaway, yeah, right? right? So, um, so the idea in these, in these great big cap stocks, Carol, is that yeah. these are adoptive, massive profit cash flow positive, lightly levered enterprises that are trading um, at uh, multiples of price to cash flow and, you know, they're, they're very, very, they're in the bargain bit. <laughs> I got to run. Do come back, though. Okay. Jim Grant, everybody. Okay. Uh, so there you have it, James Grant making the case for a return to the gold standard. Um, he believes uh, it will happen, uh, not because politicians will choose to make it happen. They're going to try to stave it off as long as possible. We're seeing that happen, certainly uh,
politicians, policymakers do not want to go back to the gold standard because it is a form of discipline. It would keep them from doing naughty things, the kind of things that have gotten us into trouble, the kind of things that are reallocating wealth from the people that create wealth to the, um, to the people that control the credit system. Uh, at least uh, that is my view. It's Mr. Grant's view. I honestly, a few years ago, if you said you thought we would go back to a gold standard, I wouldn't have thought it was possible. In any event, I think I have Ted Ohashi. Ted, are you there? Is Ted Ohashi with me? Yeah, Ted? Jay, I'm here. Ted, okay. I, I don't know if you happened to hear the clip that we just ran with James Grant. Yeah, I did. Uh, if, if so, any thoughts about what James had to say? Well, I, I think that, uh, that he's right in the sense that there is a possibility uh, that, uh, that we would move to a gold standard. I, I still don't think it's a, a large one, but it's at least possible. And, you know, I, I think they'll continue to stumble their way through um, solving their, their debt issues in other ways. Uh, but eventually, if they don't change their ways, they'll hit the wall and, and they'll have no choice. Yeah, and changing their ways, Ted. I mean, honestly, what are, what's the probability of changing their ways? Uh, well, you know, what, what's going on in the U.S. right now to me is really quite interesting because um, the, the potential is there for that debt ceiling limit discipline to have some impact on policymakers. Um, I, I do think that they're going to come out of this with something. Is it going to... Uh, reduce the level of debt? Well, no, it's not. Uh, it might slow down the increase in the rate of debt, uh, but, you know, it will at least have had that impact. And then, you know, as you move forward, and, and particularly in elections when uh, the populace speaks, I mean, I, I think there is a reasonably strong majority now in the U.S. that, uh, uh, that really wants... Um, their uh, uh, regulators to uh, uh, to look after this uh, deficit and debt issue. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I've seen figures ranging between uh, over 50% all the way up to something like 70%. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, we used to always say, you know, governments will eventually do the right thing, but only after they've done all the wrong things. Um, and uh, that's kind of what we're seeing here. All right. Well, Ted, you um, were recently in Chicago, and you, uh, I guess, at a at a small conference there, and you uh, you shared the podium with a good friend of mine, Clyde Harrison. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I did, and and uh, as you know, and uh, I know, um, you know, Clyde's had some health issues recently, mm -hmm. uh, and what I didn't realize is a month ago, he said he had brain surgery. Mm. Uh, a month ago, and and mm. there he was uh, speaking. Uh, expressing his ideas as clearly as ever, and uh, uh, I mean, it was just uh, an amazing situation. Um, I can't tell you everything he said, of course, but uh, I can tell you that he remains uh, very optimistic for commodities, uh, very optimistic for gold, and um, he thinks we're only halfway through uh, the commodity cycle, and so mm -hmm. he, he sees another eight to ten years on the upside. All right. Well, uh, if that's so, then it's good news for a lot of the companies we follow. And one I know that you follow some is Marifel Mines. Yeah. Uh, symbol MFM on the Toronto Venture Exchange. Talk to us about Marifel. I think they are a project generator company, are they not? Yeah, they are. They, they have uh, taken a somewhat different approach in the industry, which is one of the things that makes them interesting. Um, they know Argentina quite well, or they believe they do. Um, and so what they've done is they've acquired various properties in Argentina, and then they, they turn around and uh, joint venture them out to others. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what they have now is a fairly impressive portfolio of more than uh, 20 precious metals and base metals properties mm. um, that other people are working and spending money on, and that... Um, uh, Merrill ends up with a small carried interest. Mm -hmm. uh, their partners are expected to spend like almost twenty million dollars wow. uh, in direct property costs uh, over the next few years. So mm -hmm. um, it's something that's really worked out well for them. Well, I like the project generator model, as you know. Yeah. What sort of arrangements do they usually have? Do they end up with what percentage on some of these properties? Would be thirty percent or less, or what? 
Yeah, well, it, it it depends on how far the development work goes, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, right now uh, they're working on a project, and pardon my Spanish, San Roque, in uh, Rio Negro. Um, and uh, they joint ventured that one with Novagold uh, last year. Uh, Novagold's a quarter of a billion dollar market cap company. Um, and so, you know, a pretty good, uh, pretty impressive partner for uh, Merrifil. Um, and uh, there was a phase one to this project uh, that um, uh, that was completed early, uh, and now they've uh, uh, moved on to the uh, phase two part of it. Um, and in the phase two part of it, if that goes to completion, uh, Nova Gold will end up owning 70% uh, and uh, Marifil 30%. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but if, if that one were to have stopped at the end of the first phase, I think... Uh, um, uh, Nova Gold had a much, much smaller um, interest. Uh, so, um, you know, it would have been around 50% or 48%. Yeah. So, um, so this is a, a business model that, uh, that the company has been working mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and working quite successfully. Well, I like it a lot, Ted. I like the, uh, I, I need to take a look at Marifel again. Have you any sense of what the market cap is there? Or what's the share price? Yeah, the, well, the share price is uh, just over 40 cents. Uh, I saw it this morning at 42. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market cap's around $23 million. Really? Very yeah. small market cap. Any so major it, discovery would, would blow that right to the moon, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, well, for Ted, sure. and the stock's held up very well. Yeah, um, but that's just about all the time we got, Ted. I've got to apologize. We got to move on, and uh, the the day these two hours go so fast. He's telling me my engineer's telling me we have thirty seconds. That's just enough time to tell you, folks. Next week we're going to have uh, Gerald Salente uh, and also Louis Lehrman. Louis Lehrman, along with Ron Paul, was appointed by President Reagan to do a study on a return to the gold standard. And the only two people on that panel that, uh, on that committee that suggested we should go back to a gold standard was Ron Paul and Louis Lehrman. Louis Lehrman also made a, an unsuccessful bid at the, uh, to become governor of the state of New York, lost by a very thin margin. So we're really honored to have both uh, Gerald Salente and Louis Lehrman with us uh, next week. Uh, in closing, I want to thank uh, Voice America starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, and Justin uh, Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening to this show. Uh, Thanks to our sponsors for making it um, economically viable. Thanks to each of you again. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. again for listening to turning hard times into good times with jay taylor please join us again next tuesday at noon pacific time 3 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel now the thing about time is that time is in-